Welcome to the Spike Feed, your leading Magic the Gathering podcast. What is up? My name is Curtis, and I am just your typical Spike. On the line with me, my good buddy and executive producer, Cameron McCoy. Friend, how you doing? Dude, good. I woke up this morning, and there was just a little kiss of fall in the air. It was. It, it's coming, all right? And uh, as we have said, uh, best time to live in the Midwest, fall. I'm glad you had a good morning. Uh, my dog got sick last night. So, you know, Aww. hey, <laughs> not the kiss of fall that I was hoping for. We'll just put it to you that way. Um, but, dude, lots. This is like that moment in time that maybe is my favorite time in Magic. Mm. Preview season right before rotation. Synapses is just firing left and right. What yeah. am I going to be doing? And to add to that, I'm hoping to play in a standard event at the end of September. I have this, like, as soon as it hits on Arena, I have, like, nine days to build and buy a deck for this tournament, which okay. is kind of fun. You know, like, that brings me back to the old days. Now, look, if I'm being really honest with you, 28-year-old Curtis, he could do that, right? Like, that, oh, was, yeah. that was par for the course, right? But we've been off the wagon for a while, <laughs> and it's been tough. It's been tough. So, um Anyway, dude, I, I'm interested to hear what you've been up to with regards to Magic. I know things are kind of slightly maybe slowing down for you. Mm-hmm, maybe a little mm-hmm. less proposals at the Iowa State Fair Butter Cow. It, it's um, true, yeah. <laughs> I know that was like wall-to-wall coverage. National so, news right there. Right there. Um, and my understanding is she said yes. Good for her and him. Yeah. yeah. I'm stoked. I'm stoked. Uh, anyway, let's hear about it, man. Like, what you've been playing? Yeah, so uh, based off of what you were talking about last week, I went ahead and picked up some experimental, or what is it, the the creativity Indomitable creativity. Indomitable creativity. I picked up a place out of those because I had this weird unbalance because weird arena economy stuff where I have, you know, a rare and somehow 20 mythics and i don't know <laughs> like how that balance happens but that's yep. that's where yep. we're at um anyway checking out that deck and as you were talking about last week this deck is really really solid not perfect there's like some tweaks that i want to make here and there but all in all this is such a fun solid deck and you can come up from behind out of nowhere, which is awesome. Like, I mean, there's a lot of times where, like, I I will be dead on the, dead on the next turn. But because I can just chain, you know, like, <laughs> all of these uh, Torrential Gear Hulks, it's awesome. Awesome, awesome, awesome. So I've been having a blast with this deck. Um, playing against, I would say, like you, if I'm playing against any of the mid-range decks, like, I'm just trouncing all over them. Mo- like like the any of the black red or Jun sacrifice decks, it just doesn't matter. Like I can just kind of play the long game with that, and it's totally fine. Um, mm-hmm. Lots of artifact hate, which really helps with that deck as well. Um, yeah, and I would say like the thing that I've been struggling with against the most is either like the pure control decks, uh, which can you know just bring in lots of counter spells against for like those kind of key moments for me. Uh, in those early games or those early turns. Um, and then the hyper aggressive decks are like, you know, sometimes problematic because really I don't get going into like, you know, turn four, turn five, right? Um, but overall, like, this is such a great deck. 
Um, the other thing that's just kind of stood out, stood out to me this week, um, which I'm not ex- wasn't expecting, lots and lots and lots of junk Siege Rhino decks, um, which are actually really really good. But I mean, they're Tireless Tracker, Siege Rhino, Rhino, some number of Planeswalkers, and then just you know really good quality creature cards. Um, so like it just kind of threw me off how often I've been seeing this deck. Um, it's good, uh, but I don't think it's like over the top great. I just I'm wondering if it's just new and people want to play Siege Rhinos or why I'm seeing this so often. So I have that deck, and I have I think it was two weeks ago maybe I played that deck a lot, and okay. I kind of came to the okay. conclusion that the black green element of the deck is really solid. Um, white gives you some sideboard options, but you're really just splashing white for the Siege Rhino. Mm-hmm. And my conclusion, my net was, Chandra Torch of Defiance and Fable of the Mirror Breaker are better cards in this format than Siege Rhino. Mm. There are these corner cases, specifically against Mono Red or Mono White, where Siege Rhino is fractionally... I I mean, maybe... I'm talking Mono White aggro like Death and Taxes, not the Angels deck. The Mm -hmm. Siege Rhino is, like, worthless against the Angels deck. Um, But I just find that I got more out of having Red in that deck, and oftentimes I got more out of being straight green-black, because then you can do things like Casualties of War... Um, or go maybe a little bit harder in that direction. If you have red, how far do you want to go down the treasure path? Like, because you can really, you can full go, go full Goldspan Dragon and all these other things. Mm-hmm. Um, so I found Siege Rhino to be pretty overrated. And often I wanted Kalidus on the field more often than Siege Rhino. Hmm. Yeah. Yes. Against Ag- so uh, here's the here's the magic trick I think that Siege Rhino pulls. The matchups where it's good, it is so over-the-top good that you think, I need this every time. Mm. But the reality is against what we think are the best decks, which are mostly like control-style decks. This blue-red creativity deck is a control deck. The blue-white deck is a control deck. Now we're seeing Esper that preys on both the creativity and the blue-white deck, but is probably mm-hmm. a little worse against the aggro. Um, they don't care about Siege Rhino. It's... Mm-hmm. It's a bad, dumb four mana card for them, right? Sure. Um, and to your point with the creativity deck, like I feel like the blue white matchup is not favorable, but it's fine. Mm-hmm. I feel like the Esper matchup is almost unwinnable because once they have duress plus a counter spell, it's really hard for you to beat that. Like, because you need a certain quantity of things for your, you know, creativity setup to go right. Or like a lot of times against control, you end up not doing the indomitable creativity thing you just do stuff like you know you magma magma opus on your turn because they're tapped out for a teferi or you mm-hmm. know like you kind of have mm-hmm. to pick your spots in weird moments but blue white i feel like is at least somewhat winnable but when they're bringing in like some number of go blanks duress thought distortion plus dovin's veto it's like <laughs> yeah. oh boy um but historic's about to have a big ch- shakeup. Um, maybe people wake up on these green-black decks once Liliana Veil comes in, and that will change the structure of how you want to build those decks, right? For sure, for sure. I hope you didn't cash out too many Mythics, because I know you're going to need four of those. I have plenty of Mythics, don't worry. (laughs) (laughs) 
like but meanwhile you'll just be sc- scraping for rares right like every yeah yeah they gotta how it fix goes. that man whatever <laughs> oh and you know what like it's kind of a bummer because usually this is my cube season and i kind of like really work hard on making cube profitable for me leading into a new set but i've hated the new cube so much mm-hmm. that i you know i'm i don't have a stockpile of rare cards which is going to be eh, maybe not great for the pocketbook whatever <laughs> um anyway i just I've just kind of been bidding this standard adieu. Um, the Esper Midrange deck, which is kind of my favorite deck to play, though I don't, th- I think the Hinata deck is the actual best deck. Um, I, I think I lost like seven matches in a row with it this morning. A lot of people have gone to just mono green wherever I'm at in the ladder, and that is a brutal matchup if you don't have the correct sideboard and things like that. So. I, I would also say I didn't play super great, but I am going to kind of miss this standard. To me, it signified the return of a lot of things. Mm-hmm. And I think we're still headed in the right direction with Dominaria United. Like, we're kind of getting to these deck lists where there's a lot of two and three ofs. Not everything's a clean four of. There is a real discussion if you want to be single color, multicolor, mono, you know, whatever. Like, I don't know if you've been looking at the upcoming deck list that people have been publishing. Um, but there's some really good ones, and some people have been saying, like, hey, there's there's probably going to be a mono blue Delver deck in this standard. You know, okay. how fun is that? Yeah. 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 I, for those of you uh, listening, not watching, which is no one, uh, Cameron's <laughs> ears literally just perked up. I said <laughs> mono blue Delver, and he was like, wait, what? <laughs> what? And, like, the, the price quote I saw on it was, like, $80, Cameron. So mm. you can go crush some standard with some Delver of Secrets, right? Maybe I'll join you on that standard tournament. Just suit up a mono blue Delver deck. Hey, I think I still have some Korean Delver of Secrets. I need to bust those suckers out, man. Some bling right there, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um, all right, so I do want to talk about Dominaria United. Um and this is kind of going to be our central focus for the next, like, this week and next week, uh, especially as we're looking forward to how it's going to affect Standard, Pioneer, and Modern. I think that's kind of the window. We might m- mention some cards in terms of Legacy, but again, there's so many supplemental pro- products that have hit Legacy and so few Legacy events, it is really hard to chart, okay? Um, and some of these are kind of like callbacks, like there's a new Weatherlight that we're not going to go over. But there's a new Braids, Cameron, and I'm interested in your thoughts on this. Why don't you go ahead and read it for us? Yeah, so Braids Risen Nightmare cost one black black for a legendary nightmare creature. Power and toughness of 3-3. At the beginning of your end step, you may sacrifice an artifact creature, enchantment, land, or planeswalker. If you do, each opponent may sacrifice a permanent that shares a card type with it. For each opponent who doesn't, that player loses two life, and you draw a card. Man, fun, interactive, black magic card. Uh, like, I really love the mechanic of this card. Um, and I think it has some teeth. I think this is a sort of card that um, in an Esper deck or, you know, some sort of, like, sacrifice deck, um, I feel like this is going to be really, really good. I, I really like this card. I think it's going to be one of those that it's either... Because, okay, so the internet writ large has just written this off as a disaster and a terrible card. And I would also mention that there have been two other braids. The most infamous one is the uh, the old one from... Is that Invasion? Apocalypse? Something. Mm-hmm. Uh, braids Cabal Minion. So, point being is, 
This is a fan. This is a famous magic character. In case you're not in the know, um, that has a kind of I would say uh, tournament history of maybe not being the most fun card in the world. Mm-hmm. What I will say is, I think this card sits really on those extreme ends that. If you can find an outlet to make this happen. So let's say that there's an Esper Tokens, because there was one of those in Standard not too long ago. So remember that was with Hero of Precinct 1. Mm-hmm. Like you would play that card in this in that in this card in that deck. Because your ability to generate any kind of material that your opponent cannot and then sack it, like, is an engine for you to draw cards, right? And two life them losing two life isn't nothing. Mm-hmm. Um but it also depends on your ability to generate that material and the amount of instant speed removal that is commonly seeing play. Because we've definitely been through standards where, you know, instant speed removal is not a thing, is a thing. I would point out, this is a 3-3. Strangle does get it. Strangle is sorcery speed. So if you can actually create the setup to get your kind of two-for-one out of this, the strangle element of it is kind of irrelevant. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, yeah. Graveyard Trespasser is the other black three drop that is really competing at this spot. Uh, there's also Rafine, which is, you know, kind of a different ball game, but there's also, you know, if you're going to go down color pie things, there's wedding announcement and all this stuff. Mm-hmm. But I think this card is better than people think it is. That's kind of where I'm at. Yeah. And I don't know yeah. how much of this is revolving around kind of multiplayer casual stuff. Uh, but if you can develop the engine for this, it's going to be a really difficult card to beat. Like if they get two activations out of it. Mm-hmm. Um, really, really difficult. All right. So next up is, I mean, this is, this is a, uh, the proverbial merfolk Lord. I think this is like, Hey, would you like to see an indication of some power creep? So Vidalian Hexcatcher, one in a blue for a one, one flash merfolk wizard. Other merfolk you control get 1-1. One, one. Sacrifice a merfolk. Counter target non-creature spell unless its controller pays 1. So, this is a really good merfolk lord. Um, <laughs> like, really, really good. I don't know that it's going to change the fate of that deck in Legacy, but I think there is a conversation to be had about Merfolk's place in Modern. Uh, I've been told, though I have not seen the matchup, that uh, Merfolk really goes through those five-color elemental decks like really efficiently and is also mm-hmm. quite good against... Like Supposedly, it's the deck that is good against the Ragavan decks, and it's good against... Uh, you know, But against Living Ed, and it's probably terrible. This actually sh- like makes the Living End matchup, I'd say, slightly better. Mm-hmm. Um, but this is a really push card. I don't know that it's going to change much about the archetype. Um, but what's your thoughts, man? Uh, just to kind of echo what you're saying, this is a push card. I mean, it's a lord. It has flash, and it has a sacrifice effect that counters something. I mean, this is three merfolks in one, like in like <laughs> a modern deck from like you know ten years ago, which is kind of in- insane when you think about it. So whether or not it's actually going to fundamentally change what a merfolk deck is. Yeah, you're going to put these in it, but I don't know if this is like the new Master of Waves, you know, or something like that, that kind of really shook up that Merfolk deck eight or nine years ago. It's going to be great, um, but I don't know if this is the this is the card that's going to make modern Merfolk, you know, the the force 
of of uh, of modern, right? Yeah, and I would also say that like modern is still and often uh, a format where people kind of have their deck and they play their deck, yeah. right? Yeah. And this might represent Merfolk going from tier two to tier one, and that's okay. I mean, it doesn't mm-hmm. really affect me, um, mm-hmm. but it, it's just like a sign of things to come. Now, I just want to jump down to another one. There, there's a whole cycle of these lords. There's an elf lord. There's all this. Mm-hmm. I want to jump j- down to Shatterite Priest because I've read and listened to people say this is a good card. Some implying that it's even better than the Merfolk Lord. Okay? And I want I want your help to understand, Cameron. Okay? One in a black. Oh, this is Shatterite Priest. One in a black for a 2-2 human cleric. Other clerics get plus one, plus one. Three black, black tap. Sacrifice another cleric. Search your library for a black creature card. Put it onto the battlefield. Then shuffle. Mm-hmm. I mean, we're in territory where I think if this seeds standard pioneer or modern play, I'm going to eat an onion whole. Like, I don't. What am I missing? Like, I get it gets a grizzle brand on turn <laughs> five. <laughs> turn five. In the meantime, I've played some clerics. Yeah. I I don't. I don't get it, dude. Please help. Yeah. Me. Uh, no, I don't, I don't get it either. I mean, if you're playing a Grizzlebrand deck, you're going to be playing other, like, return graveyard, you, you know, effects or whatever that cost four. Or, you know, don't require a body, I mean, where, like, this thing is going to die, right? I mean, so you're paying two for a 2-2 two, two body on your turn or whatever. You're waiting a turn or however many for this thing to be activated. It's like... And another cleric. And the other and cleric. And another Kessel. cleric, right? Yeah, so, like... There is a lot of steps to get that Grizzle Brand or Progenitus or like whatever, you know, absurd black card that you're going to get. I just don't know if the um the juice is worth the squeeze. Yeah. Yeah. I and I don't know. Like to me it's been a real eye opener to see people say things like, Well, it's probably not good enough for Pioneer, but definitely good enough for standard. I think. Have you played standard in the past? I mean, dude, I've been back playing competitively, sta- playing standard like at FNM level for like 15 years. And I can't think of a single standard where this would be good enough. Mm-hmm. But especially not now. The, I mean, we're in the era where Force Spike or Jawari Disruption, which is kind of a crappy Force Spike, mm-hmm. is playable because everybody always curves out all the time. Mm-hmm. Right? This is why Mana Leak is too good for standard. Mm-hmm. No one ever plays th- with three open. Like, it just does not happen. So, like, the idea uh, that th- you're going to, like, roll this out against Mono Green and it's going to work, like, I just don't get it. Yeah. And which means we've probably reached a level of assurity, assur- assurance on my part that it's going to be the defining standard card. <laughs> sure. <laughs> But like honestly, dude, I can't I can't even think of a, a card that we've reviewed in whatever eight years of doing this show that I've been like, there is no way. And I just read this mm-hmm. and I think there is no way. Yeah, yeah. This is not Oko. I know that. 
now to be fair, with Oka, we were kind of like, this is okay if it's gonna if the food stuff is gonna be a thing. Sure. <laughs> I should go back and listen to it. Uh, I think the most right we were, I think I'm really aging us here, was um, Jace Verin's Prodigy. Mm. Because there JVP. was a lot, JVP, there was a lot of, this is trash, this is a garbage Jace. And uh, I think I think we windmill slammed that one. So, hey. Oh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> forget all the cards we got wrong. Let's think of the one, Cameron. Okay? I like it. Remember that. Um also, Sea Drino, still overrated. Um, all right, so the, on the like slightly overrated chain, I want you to read Guardian of New Banalia. Mm. Don't understand this either. Go ahead. <clears throat> yeah, Guardian of New Banalia. A uh, human soldier costs one and a white for a 2-2 power and toughness. Enlist. As this creature attacks, you may tap a non-attacking attacking creature you control without summoning sickness. When you do, add its power to this creature's until the end of turn. Uh, whenever Guardian of Nubanalia enlists a creature, scry two, discard a card, Guardian gains um, indestructible until end of turn, and tap it. Um... I mean, it, it's it's good, right? I mean, like in a white weenie, mono white deck or something like that, um, you're putting this in there and there might be a really, you know, good, strong mono white deck. Beyond that, I don't think you're ever... This is not the Banalia enchantment, right? Like, this is not like, I think like that. Yeah, oh, yeah. Um, I've... Almost every uh, drawn out kind of rough draft Esper mid range deck I've seen has four of these, four, hmm. and I don't understand. I don't understand, Cameron. Like I, I, I just it's a two mana two two. Like let's just get this out of the way right now. This is not even on the same planet as Tenacious Underdog. Hmm. Not even close. There is zero chance you should ever run this card over that one. Period. End of story. Right? Mm -hmm. So I don't I know a lot of times people are viewing it as a replacement for Luminarch Aspirant, but we are so mm -hmm. far afield of that as well. Yeah. Like there's a um there's a one drop in black that is like a figure of destiny type uh creature. It's like, I yeah. wonder if that's just what should be the replacement for the Luminarch Aspirant. Yes, you're playing it a turn earlier, but because it's kind of a leveler, you can do all this stuff. Whereas this is just like so much work. And then I have to have a creature that's not summoning sick that I don't like. Yeah, like the closest analog I can come up to is like maybe Andanto Vanguard or whatever the one where you pay two life and it gains indestructible. And, or, you know, but like you're not really. Other than paying life, there's no other resources that you're giving up for that card. Mm -hmm. To give this indestructible, you're tapping it and, you know, <laughs> removing another card from your hand, which I don't know, like Mono White's not generating enough stuff where that's like good, you know? And if I'm playing Esper or something else, I don't know, man. I feel like there's other better cards out there. Yeah. Uh, I mean, there's just a lot of better two drops. Blood Tithe Harvester will still be legal too. Mm, mm, mm -hmm. So if you're in Jund or if you're in um, Grixis, you're gonna play those, right? Yeah. Like, yeah. 
And again, maybe I'm looking to play an 8-2 drop deck. Esper midrange is certainly that, but I just feel like there's better spots at the one, right? Like, mm-hmm. I, who's to say I don't want two of the new Fatal Push and two of the new one drops or something like that just to lower my curve, make me better against things like Ascendant Pack Leader. I don't know. Like, it, it just doesn't seem to gel for me on a deck-building level. Um, and again, maybe I'm wrong. Uh, okay, and by the way, this is kind of neither here nor there. This new standard, it seems like it's going to be tenacious underdogs world, right? Like I'm, mm. like how well that's going to pair with Liliana the Veil is going to be bananas, right? Yeah. yeah. Uh, um. All right. Last one. Shouldered the apocalypse. This has been an interesting one, and I don't know how I feel about it. So, Shouldered is a legendary Phyrexian Praetor. Two black black for a four or five death toucher. Because you really always need Death Touch on a 4-5, I find. Mm-hmm, um, mm-hmm. Whenever you draw a card, you gain two life. Whenever your opponent draws a card, they lose two life. Um, what do you think, Cameron? Is this commander only, or do you think this is going to be in fall into the standard playable or not so much? Uh, I, I mean, there's going to be somebody who tries this in a standard deck, and it might see some results. Uh, I feel like you're going to see this a lot, maybe paired with the Phyrexian Arena that's in uh, Explorer, whatever. There's like a combo deck. Mm-hmm. Um, maybe you use this just to offset one of those cards or something like that. So it might see some play, but um, yeah, I mean, a four or five for four Death Touch is not nothing, you know, and if it nets you four life or whatever difference in you know by turn four whatever that seems okay yeah i think the weird kind of interaction is with rafine right so if you have those big like turns where you connive like for four Mm. um that's pretty good and also disincentivize your opponent from conniving um so there's that positive interaction with it. So maybe Esper Midrange will play this as a one of. It's weird because, you know, it used to be when a card was like this. I mean, I don't know if you can see, but the pre sale price is uh, relatively high. Yeah. Yeah. And when that used to happen, you would be like, oh, somebody's broken this for standard. Because that's the only reason. Now it's like, wait, is this just because it's a commander thing? Because it's a Praetor? Like, you know, all of these, all like, oh, uh, yeah. yeah. But it is one of the highest priced cards in the set. Um, and the ability isn't nothing. I mean, if your opponent draws 10 cards, that's lethal. That's not crazy. Um, but it is, it is like, on its face, you're kind of like, wait, what? But I feel like if you get two activations out of this, it really does a lot. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So, anyway. Well, Cameron, hey, that's... So far, where we're at on Dominaria United, um, so far I think it's kind of a reasonable follow-up to Dominaria. I'm like, I, I'm jazzed, man. Going to pre-release, it's going to be great. I'm gonna. Well, digital pre-release is Thursday, by the way. So they're doing the thing where it's okay. on Arena beforehand. So if you want to get some reps in, and if if there's one thing I know about you, Cameron, you like reps. I get my right? reps in. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Got to get those gains. Um, All right. Well, hey, let's get out of the segment, come back and talk about what else we've been up to. All right, Cameron. So here it says you've been jumping into the world of Dishonored 2. 
I gotta be honest with you. I don't remember. I mean, I assume you played Dishonored one. I don't know if you finished it. Where were you at on yeah. that? Yeah. No. I mean, Dishonored one. I mean, gosh, that was 10, 11 years ago. I, a long time ago, and I, I think it was like one of my favorite games uh, to come out on the PlayStation three. Like you mm-hmm. know, it was a long time ago, but I I played through that. I want to say once on high chaos, once on low chaos, and then through like the DLC that came with it. And it was one of my favorite games. Like I just, I really, really, really dug it. Mm -hmm. Um, And I remember Dishonored 2 got some kind of like middling reviews when it was initially released. I think just because it was the successor to like this incredibly great game. Um, So, and for whatever reason, I just never got to it and forgot about it. And I know that you had played it a while ago, and I'm trying to remember what your initial thoughts and maybe criticisms of the game were. Um, I'm trying to play this on full low chaos, so like stealth and not trying to kill anybody. Um, and I'm finding this more difficult than both like Deathloop and and the original Dishonored, which are both from the Arcane Studios. Um, it's good. And then I'm also just... I feel like maybe the the initial setup of like you know choosing Corvo or the daughter Emily, um, I'm going with the Emily route. But like I'm kind of curious how that kind of interacts with the larger story. And just because Arcane's pretty clever with how they how decisions do kind of matter through the decision trees of the game. Um, yeah. So overall, I'm liking it. It looks sharp for being a what six or seven year old game. But um, yeah, I, I I like it. I'm I'm just curious how difficult because it feels like the difficulty curve is weighted against you playing um the low chaos route uh so i've never finished dishonor 2 because of that okay so i just to give you so and i never finished death loop i keep it, it's kind of one that was like really impossible to ever have on while my kid was around mm, yeah. just like walking through or whatever where, you know, um, so that made it tough. But Deathloop, I think, is a much better game. Yeah. Um, and I think Dishonored 1 is one of the best games ever made. So uh, the problem is, and I think uh, I use this because it came out around the same time as one of the Gears of War games. And mm. you were like, dude, how are you playing Dishonored over Gears of War? And I was like, the difference is Dishonored 2 is like, you go to a fancy restaurant and they overcook your duck. Mm-hmm. Gears of War is like, here's a cheeseburger. <laughs> Ribs. <Right? laughs> the degree of difficulty is much lower, but yeah. they nail it, right? Yeah, and yeah, yeah. The problem with Dishonored is, and I went on to read, so basically two teams made the first Dishonored, and then they split and one made Dishonored 2 and one made Prey. Mm, um interesting. And so okay. you yeah. kind of feel that and I felt like Prey is a much better expression of Dishonored in a weird way over Dishonored 2. But yeah. what I ha- what happened was so the way I did it is Dishonored 1 I killed two people for very specific reasons in that game. Everybody else I left alone and I was very very meticulous. Dishonored 2 just doesn't want you to be that. Mm-hmm. They want you to kind of get caught, figure your way out and they've I feel like I read this about like them wanting that to be the game that way. But what ends up happening functionally is there's a lot of like cheap moments 
where there's like a guard hanging out in a closet or something. And there's like no way you would have known that mm-hmm. unless so you kind of get your chaos thing blown because they decided to trick you. So the whole thing plays like they know that you've already played all of Dishonored 1 and all the DLC. So the difficulty is already to that level. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. then they've added, I would argue, much worse level design than basically all their other games. Mm-hmm. And I don't, there's a really cool set series of levels in it. Um, but I just keep meaning to, it's my pride that's in the way, but I just keep meaning to load it back up, knock the difficulty all the way down. Yeah. And just get the narrative because supposedly the story is really quite good. And then there's a, a DLC called Death of the Outsider that's standalone, which I've never played either. But it's just, it's hard to get past how the first Dishonored was such this masterpiece and this is just a pretty good game. Yeah, yeah. That's kind of where I'm at right now. <laughs> but like, dude, and you'll, and you'll feel it. Like, because I, I, I did this whole thing where I was like, am I crazy, you know? And Dishonored 2 came with a... I can't remember what they called the edition of Dishonored 1 that came out on PS4 and Xbox One. But I, I loaded it back up, and it was just like, oh, yeah, you escape the prison. You land in the docks. Like, you discover this witch. Mm-hmm. Like, all these things that happened in Dishonored 1 just feel so incredibly rich and original. Yeah. And Dishonored 2 is like, oh, hey, there's a whole battalion of guys, uh, you know, hiding underneath this wagon. Gotcha. Yeah. <laughs> Um, oh God! First Dishonored, though. I need to revisit that. Um, good one. So I, I was kind of jazzed because we were going to come on and you and I were going to kick it about a new Game <laughs> of Thrones series, House of the Dragon. Wife and I are back to our um, old habit of blocking off Sunday nights. And okay, it's time to watch uh, Game of Thrones together. So. <sighs> But you didn't, you didn't, you didn't pick it up. Have you talked to the wife about this? Where are you guys yeah, at? Yeah, on no, I mean, we we were like Thursday night, like we were just sitting there looking at it. It was staring at us in the face, and we're like, I, I don't know if I, I I need to get a full review from some other people before I dive back in. So it's good. Um, I I feel Put like a giant asterisk around that. <laughs> I would put it at, at like early, it feels like early Game of Thrones. The production value is definitely okay. higher, um, but it is not this kind of outrageous silliness that happened in the last two seasons that just felt like, I, and hey, I know there are people that worked really hard on those last two seasons. I'm not trying to throw them oh, under yeah. the bus, but some of the scripts just felt like, please God, let's just get this over with. Mm-hmm. Like it was so like, compressed and rushed and narratively didn't make a lot of sense and just not in keeping with like people always talk about how game of thrones or song of ice and fire has all these surprises and it's like really what george r R. martin is trying to do is to indicate to you that like some things definitely are a result of or their consequences right and there's Mm -hmm. a lot in in the books and the first half of that tv show like when certain characters die or whatever, you are told multiple times that this is going to happen. Mm-hmm. Like it is, it is foreshadow city all the time, yeah. right? And constantly things like the wedding or the end of the first season, you are told over and over and over again, 
this is going to happen. This is going to go poorly. And it does go poorly. And because you've been conditioned by other TV shows to like, you know, oh, well, the heroes still get out and they Mm -hmm. don't, you know. So I think that's a fun thing. This is not that. This is just, hey, this is their Targaryens. And so as a result, it feels a little bit more like, um, what's the Netflix show about the royal family? Um, oh, the Tudors, right? No, I'm talking. That, that is a show about royal family, but it's not the one I'm thinking of. Yeah, but I yes. know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, but anyway, the point being, or there was the Queen, or whatever. The, like these, sure, the, sure. these kinds of shows. Um, there are no Starks in this operation. There is nobody that you are clearly like. That guy is a good guy, and I'm rooting for him. Mm-hmm. He makes some mistakes, but his heart is right. His heart is in the right place. I'm telling you this as someone who's read this book. All these people are completely deplorable, like okay. absolutely <laughs> awful human beings, right? And then because like, and some of the ones that you're presented with as, hey, look at how awful this guy is. It's like I know kind of what happens later on in the story, and it's like, wait till you find out what this other dude who you think is decent. <laughs> you know what I mean? Um, I've also been told to not rewatch Game of Thrones because apparently there's a scene in the first show that like. They're in like the dragon pit or what was the dragon pit, and they lay out a ten- basically the entire plot of House of Dragons. <laughs> like, because to them it's history, right? So they're telling yeah, you yeah, about yeah. what happens to all these characters. Like, it's, it's some kind of exchange between characters, and they tell you who dies and why and everything. So, <laughs> okay. <laughs> um, but I would also say this, Cameron, and th- this is kind of regret- regrettable. There is a revelation that happens at the end of this first episode that is incredible. If you are a, a Song of Ice and Fire person that wants to understand the lore at all, is a really big deal. Okay. And I, I mean, I actually said to myself, whoa, out loud. Now, granted, <laughs> I'm in it. I'm that guy. I'm a mark for that, right? I, I mean, that might be a shock because I don't care about Magic the Gathering's lore. But Game of Thrones lore, I'm like in it to win it. You know what I mean? Okay. So, but yeah, okay. We're going to give it a go. We're going to give it a go. Performances are good. Shot well. Script is good. Way over the top in terms of graphic stuff. Like way, way, way past where it should be, which I would also argue is maybe HBO's MO with an early season thing. Sure. Um, You know, but anyway, really good. So, uh, Cameron, if someone would like to get a hold of you, and talk to you about the Targaryens and their family line, where could they find you? That's all on Twitter, at Cameron <laughs> underscore McCoy. And I am at Curtis Now. Our official show feed is at Spike MTG. We'll check you guys next week.